0: What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rosk podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about a topic that Seth Godin brings up with regards to the concept of super chickens. So big shout out to Seth Godin and his podcast, Akimbo. Um, This one really took me for a loop. And for those of you who spend some time around me, this is a topic that I talk about like all the time. So this might be repetitive, maybe it'll be reinforcing, maybe you'll hear it in a different perspective, but I think it's a really good one and a really important topic. So what the hell is a super chicken? So the idea of super chickens comes from a researcher by the name of William Muir from Purdue University, who basically studied two flocks of chickens over six generations. So one flock was just six generations of your average flock of chickens. The other group was a flock of selected chickens that were considered to be the most productive, the alpha of their groups. And they were put into a flock and then they were followed for six generations as well. They were looked at in terms of their productivity and how much they flourished and the average flock flourished perfectly well. The elite flock of quote-unquote super chickens were whittled down to just three. Those three killed all the other chickens. Now, there are a lot of different lessons to be drawn from this. There might be a certain uh, intent with these studies being put out in terms of what message they're trying to deliver and what lesson we're trying to learn from this. But I'm going to go with the things that resonate with me the most when hearing things like this. And the reason why I'm incorporating this into what we're talking about is because I think it has a lot to do with our ability to thrive as individuals and as a collective within this field of healthcare. While we're not going around physically pecking to death those who are below us or those who we consider to be a threat to our dominance, spoiler alert, I feel like we might be doing something much worse. Now, for me, the reason why this made so much sense in the context of the things that I talk about, the things that I reflect on in terms of myself and in terms of what I see around me is another concept that Gary Vaynerchuk talks about a lot in the world of business, which is there's two ways to build the tallest building. You either get to building the tallest building or you tear everyone else's building down. I think it all stems from the same place. Now, this is something, again, a lot of you have probably heard me say something like this before, but, The schooling system is designed as a popularity contest, except what's considered to be popular is your ranking in terms of passing and failing, not in terms of your intelligence, not in terms of success. It's all just fancy terminology for how many of you passed, and among those who passed, how close did you get to an average score of 100% of perfect. Perfect on the tests that you're taking, which allow you to just get a green light to go to the next year or be reprocessed if you didn't do well enough and the extra credit that you do and the extra assignments and just all these other things that give you more points add up to your score at the end for your ability to move forward which is why we look back on so many aspects of our education and wonder how much of that was relevant to what we're doing now but the point of talking about it is you go through schooling like that and Most of us, if not all of us, within the healthcare space, in some respective way, were closer to the top of our quote-unquote flock as we went through school. You go through all these years and these tests, and you come out on top because you know that that's going to give you the best chance to then move to the next step, and it gives you more selection, or it gives you a bit of the illusion of choice in this finite path you're choosing, in this fixed path you're choosing, in this sort of assembly line of academics. But you gotta get to your end goal. So you do what you need to do and you get to the top, whether you learned anything or not, even if it's just how to take a test. Eventually, you go from being the top to being accepted into a select group of people in a school, in an institution, in a group, whatever it might be, and only the top, say, 5%, or the top 10%, or the top 1% of your class, of everyone's class, gets picked. Which means 100% of the group you're in now consists of the top 1% to 5 to 10% of the people who graduated from school. And that's a very drawn-out way of saying you're now average. So everything you did in school and after school and on the weekends and in the summers to build up the priority in your life, which was to come out on top so that you had the best opportunity based on the rubric and based on the requirements that the powers that be have placed, your entire ego, your entire identity, your entire sense of self-worth is built on this idea of being at the top of the passing food chain. Then you end up average. Now everyone is at threat. Everybody's ego, everybody's, you know, as Tom Bilyeu says, the psychological immune system, everybody is at threat now. Everybody's in danger of being put below average. Except that room, that wiggle room is way less now because you've concentrated a very select group of people who have, who are like at the top, That wiggle room is gone now. You don't have the lower end to buffer you anymore. And so the trouble with going through school with the mindset of you are identified based on these scores and that identifies how smart you are, how capable you are, how valid you are in the process. This is a fixed mindset. This is the idea that you are identified as smart or not smart, capable or not capable. You find things to be easy. The, the, carved out process to get you to the end point was a select number of tasks of challenges and you learned how to tackle those challenges quickly efficiently easily and as close to perfectly as possible so you're now in this room figurative or literal of every top person which now puts you at the average how do you stand out couple of ways you gravitate towards the things you find easy or gravitate away from the things you find difficult you stick to the things you know which means you're staying away from the things you don't know the things that make you feel dumb the things that make you realize you've got a lot of work to do a lot of learning to do and the other thing you might do is preserve yourself in the destruction of the people around you on a macro or micro level that might sound all too familiar to many, if not all of you. The concept of a dog eat dog world, which is funny because actor Terry Cruz says, when have you ever heard of a dog eating another dog or the concept of nurses eating their young, which a lot of you can relate to that idea. Maybe you've been taught that just straight up taught that phrase before, but this all contributes to the idea of a fixed mindset and mindset and the growth mindset is something we're going to talk about as we get into later podcasts and especially as we get into more of the sort of book club driven podcasts revolving around certain books that i'll be tackling um the first of which is going to be the obstacle is the way by ryan holiday um so a little preview on that but the next one after that's going to be uh, mindset by carol dweck and it's like one of the most important books that anybody especially in the academic world can read Anyway, I digress. Now, why does a person seek out to lower others around them in order to preserve their own self-worth? Like, making someone else feel worse about themselves or making someone else lose confidence doesn't change how capable and how smart you are or are not. So why does that matter? It goes back to things like the Dean list. It goes back to things like the grades that you get. Someone else is determining your level of worth, your level of capability, your level of value, your level of how much you deserve to be tended to when it comes to being cultivated into what you want to become. You become desperate. And so by pushing others down, you create an image in the eyes of those who are going to judge you and their focus of, it all just becomes a comparison, right? They are looking at you not as an individual. They're looking at you compared to other people, or at least that's how you perceive it and then you get your faking it till you make it, and you get your cutthroat nature. The problem is this all sounds very high school, and we've all left high school, but high school hasn't left us. And so even when we get into positions where we're just doing our job, we're not in any rat race, we're not in an academic path, we're just making sure that we fulfill our role as a PA, a physician, a nurse, a tech, an EMT, whatever. You're not looking to climb any ladder, but it affects the way you think about yourself. It affects the way you value yourself. It affects the way you quantify your own self-worth. And at the end of the day, all of the judges, the juries, the executioners have all gone home. They're not thinking about you. You're left with your own thoughts. And if you spend most of your life in a process where you're waiting for someone else to validate you, to approve your progression, you don't have a voice of your own so that voice that you do have becomes an echo of the voices that you've been hearing and so comes the self-preservation so comes the condescension so comes the mind games so comes the constantly on edge the defensive behavior the looking at the negative in every situation because you think that others are not not out there to preserve you because you're not out there to preserve them because everybody's been looking out for themselves because It's a dog eat dog world and you have to fake it till you make it because even if you don't have the skill, don't you dare let anybody know that you don't make it look like you do so that you could then be accepted into the program that's supposed to carve you into that thing. Well, then what's the point? So in short, when your self-worth is judged based on your ability to do things and your ability to do things easily and quickly. You then gravitate away from the things that are hard. You gravitate away from the things that will make you look like the dumbest person in the room, even though you've heard many, many times, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. It's always nice to hear it, and we like to nod our heads and cheer that on, but we don't live it. And when you're in situations like that, you then will make sure that you're not the dumbest person in the room. So you will push down the people around you, and you will, even if others don't believe it when you say it, you'll externalize how dumb that other person is. What a stupid mistake. What are you doing? I need this done now. What's going on? Duh, let me do it. Oh, forget it. It's really all just a band-aid for our own insecurity and to be redundant self-preservation at the expense of others. How does that fit in leadership? So going back to these studies. Why did the average flock survive? Why did the average flock flourish? Well, Seth Godin goes on to talk about other previous studies that had been done. And he talks about one basic concept, which is social capital, which is made up of the social diversity and the diversity of needs. What ends up happening is you create a more average level playing field because the shared time, the equal shared time allows no one voice to be unheard or overheard, and it removes resentment. It creates a space for inclusion, even though that word is kind of overused um, in many different ways. It creates a space for those who have lesser skills to be able to practice the skills they have and comfortably expose to themselves the areas that need more skill building. And because there's a shared time and because there is a shared sort of psychological, social, academic um, productivity space, it leads to one particular vocabulary word that's part of this group, and that is empathy. Now, how does empathy exist in a world where your voice goes unheard, where the powers that be don't exactly care about your well-being as it truly is important? cares about the well-being of the whole at the expense of the individuals. How do you have empathy in those situations? That's where leadership comes in. That's where leaders eat last. And I'm not saying that to say that's where you need to point the finger at the leaders. I'm saying what I've been saying from the beginning. That's where the leader in you has to come out, whether it's the leader of your own self and your thoughts, the leader of the few people who work around you, the leader of your department, the leader of your institution, the leader of your family. Whatever the case is, this uncarved path has to be carved. Carving will, in the short term, take from you more than it gives. Unless you don't see it as the short term. Unless you have your hook onto the end goal and you're reeling that in. Unless you have something you're working towards that you might not see manifest in your lifetime. I know all that sounds really abstract and fluffy, fluff, fluff, and like not real and here and now, but the fact of the matter is, I don't think I've talked about this as a podcast topic yet, but I'm going to, if I haven't already, the fact that there will be people who do less than their fair share. And at the end of the day, the thing, the whole thing needs to be done. You're either going to do more or less than your fair share. And there are some people out there who will do less than their fair share simply because they don't want to contribute. Some do less than their fair share because something's holding them back. And if they broke through that barrier, they'd be doing more. That's a whole other issue. But the commonality between both of those groups is the fact that the perception of those groups, those types of people are in defense mode and they're in they're in need. Now, let me explain that a little bit. I talked a while back about this idea that The reason why someone has to take the step and the reason why you have to be the change you want to see in the world is because everybody is waiting for the person next to them to make the difference. I recently had a conversation with a couple of nurses, and we talked about this, this idea that for something as big as changing the culture of healthcare and burnout and fulfillment and all of the things that come with it, it might be that you have to put in the work ahead of time that is completely rewardless to the extent that it might be rewardless for your entire life. And the immediate response was very predictable of, well, I'm not gonna do that. And my response to that was, and that's why nothing will change, at least for that person. It's a sad, it's, it's an, not a sad reality, it's an unfortunate reality, unfortunate from our perspective, because we're driven by incentive and reward. But there's short-term rewards and there's long-term goals. You have to have both to be balanced and move forward. That's why taking an individual approach to all of this is so important. Because if you start thinking about self-preservation in the realm of empathy, you start to take satisfaction and fulfillment, and you start to take positive hits on yourself and your mentality and your psyche every time you implement these things. Because you're doing it both to change the culture, to be a pillar or an example or a beacon for others to take example from, but you're also doing it because you understand that it is chemically making a difference for you. That form of selfishness is a selflessness. It's the perfect paradox. That's your short-term benefit. And it frustrates me to talk about that because when I would hear stuff like that, it never resonated because I would always be like, Yeah, I want to be happier and more fulfilled and more optimistic and all this stuff. But like the idea of like telling myself I'm happier or the idea of putting the work in to change the way I think didn't seem appealing to me. I wanted everything around me to make me feel better. I wanted it to be a feeling that I got that was passive. And I'm having a hard time explaining that properly, but you might understand what I'm saying. You just want to be happy in where you're in. You don't want to have to put the work in to do it because the work is grueling. But I say it now from the other perspective because starting to put in the effort of creating habit loops that cause you to think more silver lining, more optimism, more productive, more proactive, it's going to change everything. And I remember when it changed everything, there was one night it actually flipped a switch and I bounced back and forth. But that pivotal moment was... Tear inducing, like it was like, it was a high. I couldn't understand why I was like smiling at that moment. And like I said, you have your ups and downs, you have your dips and you have your peaks. But the point is that it exposes you to a different path. Bringing it back to the idea of leadership and this whole super chicken thing, in order to create a space for people to understand the concept of social capital and shared equal time and creating a space for everyone to have a, uh, the ability to grow and to learn and to make mistakes and to express themselves and be accepted or be heard, even if it's not taken as a good idea, let's say, to be to be blunt. Creating that space requires selflessness upfront, because it requires the leader to eat last. Whatever position you're in, whatever form of leadership you're holding, whether it's on a micro or a macro scale. Really embodying this idea that leaders eat last, really putting yourself last, putting your stomach last, putting your heart last, putting your feelings last, putting your ego last, putting your desires last. Does that mean that you completely bend over and break your back? Not always, but it does mean that if you want your desire, your goal, your selfish end point to be fulfilled, You have to achieve it as a secondary to making sure that the primary goal is achieved. That can only be done by people who are willing to do more than their fair share. It can only be done by the person who recognizes that I, like everyone else, is waiting for the other person to make the move. And you just have to make the move. And by making the move, it could be helping something that implemented on a physical level, on an institutional level, on an administrative level, or it could be deciding one day that, you know what, I am not going to op- outwardly express any of the negativity that I feel. It has never changed anything. It's gotten my blood pressure up. It's gotten me more exhausted. It just constantly reminds me of what's bad. I'm not going to stop thinking about the negative. I'm not going to stop feeling it, but I'm going to stop verbalizing it. I'm not going to sit there and be positive. I'm not going to say anything positive. I'm not going to be phony. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut when it comes to wanting to say something negative. The frustrating thing about that is you won't feel it. It'll feel stupid. It'll feel silly. It'll feel like this is so not, this is ridiculous. But just like any other habit, the habit loops you form psychologically, it's all neurochemistry. It's all, all, all the thoughts you have, no matter how amazing it is that a finite mass of tissue and chemicals and electricity, can cause so many varying and nearly infinite thought patterns. It all comes down to a few chemicals, some neurons, some fat cells, and some electricity. And those habit loops get developed physically neurologically, and they can be broken and they can be rewired. It takes doing it again and again and again to then form that loop to then create that habit that requires Being the leader of your brain, of your mind, of your emotions. You eat last. You're your consciousness. You're your your choices. Making that elite idealist mentality of how things should be and how others need to do certain things is a form of a super chicken, as silly as that sounds. And it's destroying you because it's not taking the reality into the situation. It's not giving an even space for everything that's going on and understanding that things that are going on cannot be controlled necessarily, but your reaction to them can. Sound familiar? And the ultimate point of it is however you might feel it needs to be implemented, the point of it is moving towards that. And that brings up an interesting point going back to the academic system. Trial and error is totally acceptable. And because of the academic pathway that we've always been in, when you see failure after failure after failure, you lose faith in the person. You're just like, well, you had this idea it was terrible and that was terrible, and that was terrible. I don't really wanna go for the next one. But when you, like for example, a business mentor of mine had once said, you know, they say one out of every 10 businesses makes it, and one out of every 10 of those makes it to a million. So nine out of 10 fail. And he said to me, okay, so then we just gotta create 10 businesses, and nine of them can even suck. This idea of trial and error needs to be more accepted. Let's try something and see what happens. And there are gonna be people who will come in skeptical, and when it fails, say, see, I told you so. The beautiful thing is, Those people who say, I told you so, it didn't work, whatever, are probably not going to be a barrier for you because they don't do anything anyway. So they certainly won't put in the effort to actively fight against you. Some might. But most of the time, you're just dealing with noise. Understanding this idea of social capital, understanding this idea of creating space for empathy to occur, and then understanding that empathy or leadership or optimism, all of these things contribute to a larger good that upfront seem expensive. The cost seems greater than the benefit. Whether that is you creating an entirely new organization or department, or you creating a new thought pattern and breaking an old habit loop. The ultimate goal here is to practice the actions, of the people or of the organizations that output the sentiments, the emotions, the good vibes, the decreased burnout, the increased fulfillment. It all starts with taking the action and moving forward, understanding that the end goal is going to have to pull you through the moments where you're giving more than you're taking. And with that, I will see you next time.